Chapter 4 A Man and the Abyss I say, uh, can you get me a lodging? These words I discharged carelessly over my shoulder at a stout or elderly woman, of whose fare I was partaking in a greasy coffee-house down near the pool, not very far from Limehouse. Yes, he answered shortly, my appearance possibly not approximating the standard of affluence required by her house. I said no more, consuming my ration of bacon and pint of sicky tea in uh, silence, nor did she take further interest in me till I came to pay my reckoning, which was fourpence. When I pulled out ten shillings and out of my pocket, and the expected result was produced. Yes, sir, she said at once, volunteering. I have nice lodgings like you'd expect a fancy to take a fancy to, you know. Back from a voyage, are you, sir? How much for a room? I inquired, ignoring her curiosity. She looked me up and down with frank surprise. Uh, I don't let rooms, not to my regular lodgers, much less casuals. Then uh, I'll have to take a look a longer bit, I said, with mock disappointment. But the sight of my ten shillings had made her keen. I can let you have a nice bed with uh, two other men, she urged. Good, respectable men, and they're steady. Yes, but I don't want to sleep with two other men, I objected. Oh, you won't have to. There's the three beds in the room, and uh, it's uh, not a very small room. How much? I demanded. Half a crown a week. Two and six to a regular lodger. Uh, You'll fancy uh, the men, I'm sure. One works in the warehouse, and he's been with me two years now, and the other's been uh, with me uh, six uh, six years, sir, and two months coming next Saturday. Uh, He's a sheen, a scene shifter, he went on. He's a steady, respectable man. Never missed a night's work in the time when he's been with me. And he likes the house. He says it's the best he can do with the uh, the way of lodgings. So I board him and the other lodgers too. I suppose he's saving uh, money right along, I insinuated innocently. Oh, bless you, no. Nor can he do as well as any, anywhere else's money with his money, you know. I thought of my own spacious west with room under its sky and unlimited air of a thousand Londons. And here was this man, a steady and reliable man, never missing a night's work, frugal and honest, lodging in one room with two other men, paying two dollars and a half per month for it, and out of his experience, judging it to be the best that he could do. And here was I, on the strength of ten shillings in my pocket, able to enter in with my rags and take up my bed with him. The human soul is a lonely thing, but it must be very lonely sometimes when there are three beds to a room and casuals when ten shillings were admitted into it. How long have you been here? I asked. Thirteen years, sir. And don't you think you'll be fancy in the lodger? Do you think you'll want to come? The while she talked, she was shuffling ponderously about the small kitchen which she cooked the food for her lodgers, who were also her boarders. When I first entered, she had been hard at work, nor had she been let up at once to the conversation. Undoubtedly she was a busy woman. Up at half-past five, she said back to the bed, last thing at night, work is fit to drop, 
13 years of it, and for reward, grey hairs, frowsy clothes, stooped shoulders, slatternly figure, and an ending toll. All of this in a foul and noisome coffee house that faced onto an alley ten feet between the walls and a waterside environment that was ugly and sickening, to say the least. You'll be here again to have a look, will you? she questioned wistfully as I went out the door. As I turned and I looked at her, I realised to the full the deeper truth underlying the very wise old maxim that virtue is its own reward. I went back to her. Have you ever taken a vacation? I asked. Vacation? Uh, yeah, a trip to the country for a couple of days, you know. Fresh air, a day off, you know, a rest. Lord Lammy, she laughed for the first time stopping from her work. A vacation, eh? For the likes of me. Ha, ha, ha. Just fancy now. Ha, mind your feet. This last selfie to me as I stumbled over the rotten threshold. Down near the West India dock I came upon a young fellow, staring disconsolately at the muddy water. A fireman's cap was pulled down across his eyes, and the fit and sag of his clothes whispered unmistakably of the sea. "'Hello, mate,' I greeted him, sparring for a beginning. "'Can you tell me a way to Wapping?' "'Yeah, work your way over on a cattle boat, did you?' he countered, fixing my nationality on the instance. And thereupon we entered upon a talk that extended itself to a public house and a couple of pints of half and an half. This led to a closer intimacy, so that when I bought to light all the shillings worth of coppers, ostensibly my all, and put aside sixpence for a bed and sixpence for more half and an half, he generously proposed that we drink up the whole shilling. My mate, he cut up rough last night, he explained, and the bobby's got him, so you can bunk with uh, with me. What do you say? I said yes, and by the time we'd soaked ourselves in a whole shilling's worth of beer and slept the night in a miserable bed in a miserable den, I knew him pretty fairly for what he was, and that, in one respect, he was a representative of a large body of the lower-class London workmen. My later experience substantiates it. He was London-born. His father was a fireman and a drinker before him, as a child, his home was the streets and the docks. He'd never learned to read, and he never felt the need for it. A vain and useless accomplishment he held, at least for a man of his station in life. He'd had a mother and numerous squalling brothers and sisters, all crammed into a couple of rooms and living on poorer and less regular food than he could ordinarily rustle for himself. In fact, he never went home, except at periods when he was unfortunate in procuring his own food. Petty pilfering and begging along the street and the docks, a trip or two to sea as mess-boy, a few trips more as coal-trimmer, and then a fully-fledged fireman. He'd reached the top of his life. And in the course of this, he'd also hammered out a philosophy of life, an ugly and repulsive philosophy, but withal a very logical and sensible one from his point of view. When I asked him what he lived for, 
he immediately answered, Booze! A voyage to sea, for a man must live and get the wherewithal, and then the paying off and the big drink at the end, and that, after all, that half-handed little drunks sponged in the pub for mates with a few coppers left, like myself, and when sponging was played out, it was another trip to sea and the repetition of the whole beastly cycle. And women, I suggested, when he'd finished proclaiming booze the sole end of existence. Women! He thumped his pot under the bar and orated eloquently. Women! It's a thing my education has learnt me to let alone. It don't pay, matey. Nah, it don't pay. What's a man like me want a women for, eh? Just you tell me. That was my ma. She was enough of banging the kids about and making the old man miserable whenever he comes home, which was seldom. I grant her, and fewer becomes a ma. Why didn't she make his home happy, that is? That was women's. That's why there's other women, too. How do they treat a poor stoker with a few shillings in his trousers? Good drunk is what he's got in his pockets. A good long drink and the women skimming out of his money so quick that he'd hardly had a glass. You know, I know. I've had my fling, and I know what's what. And I tell you, there's women is trouble, and trouble is screeching and carrying on and fighting and cutting and bobbies and magistrates and a month's hard labour back of it all, and no pay when you come out. What about a wife and children? I insisted. Home of your own and all of that. Think of it. Back from a voyage, little children climbing on your knee, wife happy and smiling, you know, kiss for you when she lays the table, a kiss all round from the babies when they go to bed, you know, the kettle singing, the long talk afterwards where you've been and what you've been seeing and of her and all the little happenings at home when you've been away and... Yeah! he cried with a playful shove of his fist on my shoulder. What's your game, then? A missus kissing and kids climbing and kettle singing, all on four pound ten a month when you've had a ship and four nothing when you haven't? Ha! I tell you what, I'll get on four pound ten, a missus rowing, kids squalling, no coal to make the kettle sing, and the kettle up the spout, and what, what I'll get, Enough to make a bloke blooming well be glad to get back to sea. Ha! A missus? What for? To make you miserable. Kids? Just take my counsel, matey, and don't have them. Look at me, look. I can have my beer when I like. No blessed missus and kids and crying for bread. I'm happy. I am, and my beer and mates like you, and a good ship coming, and another trip to sea. So, I say... Let's have another pint. Half and half. Good's enough for me. Without going further into the speech of this young fellow of two and twenty, I think I've sufficiently indicated his philosophy of life and the underlying economic reason for it. Home life he'd never known. The word home aroused nothing but unpleasant associations. In the low wages of his father and of other men in the same walk of life, he found sufficient reason for branding wife and children as encumbrances and causes of masculine misery. 
an unconscious hedonist, utterly unmoral and materialistic. He sought the greatest possible happiness for himself, and he'd found it in drink. A young sot, a premature wreck, physical inability to do a stoker's work, the gutter or the workhouse, and the end, he saw it all as clearly as I can, but it held no terrors for him. From the moment of his birth, all the forces of his environment had tended to harden him, and he viewed his wretched, inevitable future with a callousness, callousness and unconcern that I couldn't shake. And yet, he wasn't a bad man. He was not inherently vicious or brutal. He had normal mentality and a more than average physique. His eyes were blue and round, shaded by long lashes and wide apart, and there was a laugh in them and a, a fund of humour behind. The brow and general features were good. The mouth and lips were sweet, although already developing a harsh twist. The chin was weak, but not too weak, and I've seen men sitting in the highest places with weaker. His head was shapely, and so graceful that it was poised upon a perfect neck that I was not surprised by his body that night when he stripped for bed. I've seen many men strip in gymnasiums and training quarters, men of good blood and upbringing, but I've never seen one who stripped to better advantage than this young sot of two-and-twenty, this young god doomed to rack and ruin in four or five short years, and to pass hence without posterity to receive the splendid heritage it was his to bequeath. No. It seemed sacrilege to waste such a life, and yet I was forced to confess that he was right in not marrying on four pounds ten in London town. Just as the scene-shifter was happier in making both ends meet in a room shared with two other men than he would have been had he packed a feeble family along with a couple of men into a cheaper room and failed in making both ends meet. And day by day I became convinced that not only is it unwise, but it's criminal for people of the abyss to marry. There, the stones by the builder rejected. There's no place for them in the social fabric, when all the forces of society drive them downward till they perish. At the bottom of the abyss they are feeble, besotted, and imbecile. If they reproduce, the life is so cheap that perforce it perishes of itself. The work of the world goes on above them, and they don't care to take any part in it, and nor are they able to. Moreover, the work of the world doesn't need them. They are plenty, far fitter than they, clinging to the steep slopes above and struggling frantically to slide no more. In short, the London abyss is a vast shambles. Year by year and decade after decade, rural England pours in a flood of vigorous, strong life that not only doesn't renew itself, but perishes by the third generation. Competent authorities aver that the London workman whose parents and grandparents were born in London is so remarkable a specimen that he's rarely found. Mr. A. C. Pigou has said that the aged poor and the residuum which composed the submerged tenth constitute 71% of the population of London, which is to say that last year and yesterday and today at this very moment 
450,000 of these creatures are dying miserably at the bottom of the social pit called London. As to how they die, I shall take an instance from this morning's paper. Self-neglect. Yesterday, Dr. Wynne Westcott held an inquest at Shoreditch respecting the death of Elizabeth Cruz, aged 77, of 32 East Street, Hoban, who died on Wednesday last. Alice Matheson stated that she was landlady of the house where deceased, where the deceased lived. Witness last saw her alive on the previous Monday. She lived quite alone. Mr. Francis Birch, relieving officer for the Hoban district, stated that the deceased had occupied the room in question for 35 years. When witness was called, on the first he found that the old woman in a terrible state and the ambulance and coachman had to be disinfected after the removal. Dr. Chase Fennell said the death was due to blood poisoning from bed sores, due to self-neglect and filthy surroundings, and the jury returned a verdict to that effect. The most startling thing about this little incident of a woman's death is the smug complacency with which the officials looked upon it and rendered judgment. That the old woman of 77 years of age should die of self-neglect is the most optimistic way possible of looking at it. It was the old dead woman's fault that she died. Having located the responsibility, society then goes contentedly on about its own affairs. On the submerged tenth, Mr. Pigou has said, either through lack of bodily strength or of intelligence or of fibre, or of all three, they are inefficient or unwilling workers, and consequently they are unable to support themselves. They are often so degraded in intellectual as to be incapable of distinguishing their right hand from their left, or of recognising the number of their own houses. Their bodies are feeble and without stamina. Their affections are warped, and they scarcely know what family life means. 450,000 is a whole lot of people. The young fireman was only one, and it took him some time to say his little say. I should not like to hear them all talk at once, but I do wonder if God hears them.